I always use Kern as an example of what the experience should be as a fan. Because, yeah, you want your team to win. But being a fan of FC, you know, it has so many other strands to it than just whether you've won or lost the game. You always feel that memories are being made, are being created every time a game happens in Müngersdorf. And that was the feeling I had first time there as a fan. Hello and welcome to another episode of FC Überall, the FC Köln podcast by, for and about international fans of the Geisböcke, the Billy Goats. If you are watching Cologne games via ESPN, you might have heard that phrasing before by a certain commentator who is my guest today. So without further ado, here is the one and only Derek Ray. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Hello, Robert. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great honor to talk about our shared love of FC Köln. And yeah, really looking forward to it. Nice. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. I'm well. I'm busy at the moment with one game after another. To be honest, once you get into the season as a commentator, it's all a bit of a blur. You sort of forget. You think, okay, that great game I did. When was that? Was that five weeks ago? Was it two weeks ago? Was it three days ago? It, it just goes with the territory. And you're constantly juggling and preparing and watching recorded excerpts from games or complete games and sometimes during international breaks you get a little bit of a breather but in this case I don't and so on we go but I'm not complaining when I say any of this because I love what I do and it's been what I've done for a long time now going back to the 1980s. Oh yeah I mean next up on my list here is a quick look at your biography so let's browse through that very quickly please do correct me if my internet research has misled me so you were born in April of 1967 in Aberdeen, Scotland, which is on the east coast of Scotland. You began broadcasting professionally at the fantastic age of 15. It's not quite accurate, but there is some truth in, in what you've said. So my professional debut was at 19, but I began broadcasting for a hospital radio station in Aberdeen, in my home city, when I was 15. And even though it was amateur, we tried to do things professionally. So my first experience of what you might have called real radio came at the age of 15. In 1987, a couple of years later, you were broadcaster of the year. <laughs> you made your way uh, from the BBC to the Scottish Premier Division to the World Cup, which you uh, commentated in 1998. A lot of people know you as the voice of FIFA soccer video games. You are the ambassador for Barrack Rangers mm -hmm. since last year, uh, 2020, correct? That's something quite new, which has been fun. Since 2009, you have been the commentator for Bundesliga games for ESPN and uh, sometimes ABC, if I remember correctly. Well, for various entities, 2009 was when it got going really again for me because I was back in the UK at that point and ESPN had just started a UK channel. And one of my assignments was to bring the Bundesliga to UK viewers. And I did that throughout the years when ESPN had that channel. It closed down in 2013. BT Sports took over those rights. And I continued with the Bundesliga for BT Sport. And then after that, I began working for the DFL, the German Football League's own world feed, when it took on a new way of broadcasting. And I continue to do that to this day. And when ESPN got the Bundesliga rights in 2020, a six-year deal, they contacted me and asked, would I be interested in being their lead voice for American coverage of the Bundesliga? So it's sort of multifaceted my relationship with the Bundesliga, but I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, now you're located on the east coast of the US in near Boston. That's right, right. yes. So now let's go from the east coast of the US back to the east coast of Scotland when you were a kid. Tell us about your first contact with soccer and soccer culture in Aberdeen. 
Great question, and I love answering it. My first real contact would have been on the radio and on TV, but probably more on the radio. We were very much a radio family. Uh, my father had the radio on, you know, six o'clock in the morning, and it was very loud, and we all heard it, and it was always news broadcasts. And probably as kids, we would, you know, shout through, hey, Dad, shut that off, it's, it's too loud. Um, but the great thing was that we had football on the radio. So I remember listening to football on the radio from a very young age. And then, of course, on TV. But in those days, it was black and white TV. So, again, for younger people to imagine even the concept of black and white TV would be, would be something impossible. But um, the memory I have is I was, I'm going to say, around five or six. And Aberdeen being right on the coast, right on the North Sea. And so you've got the, the sea breeze and the, the sea air. And it's something I cherish to this day when I go back there is that, that smell of the North Sea. There was a golf course. There still is a golf course right down beside the beach. And there were these putting greens. And right beside those putting greens and beside the golf course is the stadium, Petodre Stadium. It's actually worth a visit if people want to go and have a different sort of footballing experience. You have the stadium that is literally right on the North Sea. And so when it's a cold day, you have the, the wind coming in off the North Sea. It's not always that pleasant, but it's part of the experience. So... Um, my dad decided to take me putting on a Saturday afternoon. And at the same time, Aberdeen were playing Dundee United in a, a match at Petodre, so just adjacent to the putting green. And we were putting, and you heard the roar of the crowd. And my dad said to me at a certain point, he said, would you like to go in? And I said, you know, my eyes lit up. I said, of course, I would love to, love to, go, and, to go and see this. You know, I'd seen it on TV and heard it on the radio. But I didn't think that, you know, at five, you, you got to do things like that. My dad being a good Aberdonian, and I say that because I should explain, uh, Aberdonians have this unfair reputation for being, there's a German word, geizig, um, which, which you know, you're nodding because you know what that means. It, it basically means being a little bit frugal, a bit tight-fisted. It's completely unfair, and it's leveled against Scots as a whole, sort of as a joke, but it, it, most, most Scots know it's really just a, a well-intentioned joke. It, it's, there's, nothing, there's no real truth behind it, because I think Scots are some of the most generous people anywhere in the world. I would say that, but, but I think it's true. But Aberdeen has this reputation. So when I say that he is the ultimate Aberdonian, he knew that at around... 10 past four, so early in the second half, they would just open the gates and let people come in so you didn't have to pay money. And that was my first introduction to live football. And I remember just thinking, wow, this is incredible. It was all in Technicolor, you know, from the black and white TV, from the radio words descriptions to now actually seeing this and all the people around me and the football in front of me and the vivid colours of the two teams. It was something that I wanted to be part of. And he said to me, he said, you know, would you like to go back and, and see a complete game sometime? Because Aberdeen won that game. So I said, yeah, when can we go again? And from that point on, we sort of became regulars or, you know, I became a regular. If my dad couldn't take me, then one of his friends would. So that's really what... Um, started it all for me, probably very similar to a lot of kids around the world, you know, in, in Scotland, in Germany, in the United States, maybe now with, with MLS, you name it. But it's that magical first experience. And long may that continue for future generations. And I think one of the things is first seeing it, seeing it as a real thing, realizing that, that it's not just this entity that exists beyond broadcasting, you know. How did that then translate to you engaging with soccer, for instance, with your friends, with family, like playing soccer? Was there already that fascination with broadcasting it, kind of like going on to that meta level of soccer? I think that really kicked on for me during the 1974 World Cup in West Germany. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, younger people will be asking, why is he saying West Germany? Wasn't it just Germany? Well, in those days, there were two Germanys and they played each other, of course, in that World Cup. But I still have a tape. In fact, my father has the tape back in Aberdeen of my fledgling attempts to essentially impersonate the commentators in that 1974 World Cup. So it left a mark on me. I, I watched just about every game and I became obsessed with, you know, the geography and the history of the, the different countries. 
you know, I was getting to know about Uruguay. I was getting to find out more about Brazil. But first and foremost, I was getting to find out more about West and East Germany. And I would pester my father with questions about, you know, why are there two Germanys? What's that all about? You know, why, why did East Germany beat West Germany when West Germany are supposed to, you know, be one of the best teams here? And so on and so on. But um, that's really, I think, when the interest took took me to a different level with that recording because again we had just bought our very first cassette recorder that was a new thing in 1974 not like nowadays where you can go on your phone and record pretty much anything you know video wise mm -hmm. audio wise this was an amazing concept to be able to record yourself and play it back and then I got a portable version of the same thing and I used to carry that around so 1974 that West Germany World Cup was very influential from my point of view did you use that uh, tape recorder just for narrating or did you also go around and just record sounds like a sound artist, for instance, would? I, I think I did a bit of that as well. I think I found that really intriguing. I, so I think we're probably coming to the, the view here that for a lot of us, sound is something very meaningful in our lives. Mm. And yeah, I think it was probably mostly the narrating, though, and... What I didn't realize at the time was I was actually getting, okay, you know, in a different sort of way, some practical experience of broadcasting. You know, even though it wasn't formal broadcasting, it wasn't being listened to by anyone else, I was getting some early practice in, in trying to become a broadcaster. And some of the things I would do, for example, I would, you know, go to the local park where my friends were, and we'd all play football, of course, especially during the summer, the games would start at, 10 o'clock in the morning and they'd still be going on at midnight, you know, because we had lights in Aberdeen till almost midnight in the summer. And, you know, you would play, but then you would take a, you know, some time out and I'd have my recorder and I would commentate on the guys playing the games, you know, and they'd get a kick out of that, hearing it back. They'd think, oh, that sounds funny. That sounds silly, maybe. I don't know. But um, that was part of the learning process. And then as I got a bit older, I plucked up the courage to take my tape recorder to Pataudry Stadium, back where it all started, for reserve games of Aberdeen initially. So, you know, you'd have some fans, maybe five, six hundred, and some of them would see me and see me talking into my tape recorder. And I quickly became known as this, you know, crazy young guy who talks to himself for 90 minutes, you know? <laughs> and um, I didn't really care. I, I, when you're young, you don't care about things like that. You just do, you know, you just do what comes naturally to you and what you, you have fun doing. Mm -hmm. And that was my view. And then eventually I took it to first team games at Patodre. So now we're talking about, you know, 13, 14,000 in attendance and you do have people right beside you. So you have to have a bit of confidence to be doing that. And I was, you know, sort of 11, 12 years of age by the time I was, I was doing that. And that was with a very good team, uh, an Aberdeen team that was actually on the cusp of becoming arguably the best club side in Europe in 1983. So it was a high level of football that I was broadcasting. I'm not pretending that my broadcasting at that age was of the same high level, but it was part of the education process for certain. Yeah. And did you always approach this, I would say, aboutness of soccer as like a more global thing? Because it seems like it really opened up a lot of channels for you that go beyond soccer. It goes to geography and everything else, like to the players, to the players' histories, then to stats and, and whatnot. Did your family, your teachers, and maybe even your friends support you in that journey going deeper into the material that then fed towards your skills as a broadcaster? I think I was very lucky. I think I had a very supportive family from that point of view. I had a family that encouraged me to be inquisitive. And I remember we had a, a globe, you know, a, a, a globe of the world when I was five or six. And I would spend hours just looking at this globe, you know, looking at points on it, um, swiveling it around, uh, testing myself as to the capitals of, of most of these countries. I used to be able to do that probably better than I can nowadays. I could, I could have told you the, the capitals and the biggest cities in, in most countries in the world at that point. And so, yes, there was always this curiosity about the world. Now, where it relates to Germany and German language, that sort of comes in as part of this story as well, because the 1974 World Cup, as I mentioned, had left this imprint on me, and I really wanted to take it further, having you know, learned so much about Germany, West and East, just through that experience. And 
in Scotland, when you're about nine, you begin language studies, foreign language studies, and it's sort of the luck of the draw. It was back then, depending on which class you're in, whether you get French or German. It's probably all changed now because uh, German is maybe not as fashionable a language now as it was then. But, but back in the 70s, German was a language that you had a 50% chance of of taking up, and if you didn't, it would be French. Spanish wasn't really on the radar so much back then. Now, I really wanted it to be German. Luckily, the class I was in was the German class. And so, you know, this was uh, grist to my um, enjoyment mill, so to speak. And I, I found early on that I loved the language. I loved listening to it. I loved hearing more about it. And when I got to secondary school, so when I was 11, 12, uh, Hazelhead Academy, I had a teacher who um, I don't mind mentioning. Sadly, he's no longer with us, but um, somebody who I consider to be one of my great influences, a guy called Brian Steele, who was my German teacher. And I think he realized from day one that he had in me a, a, a pupil, a student, who really wanted to go beyond the norm, you know, who really was sort of obsessed with the subject that he was teaching. I could tell that he was always looking to sort of help me take it to that next level. One of the things that, that I did and I discussed with him was I listened to German radio in the evenings because one of the advantages of living in Aberdeen, if you can imagine the geography, you have mm -hmm. the North Sea. And if you were to travel along the North Sea in the old days, you know, centuries ago, this was the, the main highway, was a waterway, you know, Aberdeen to northern Germany. There was so much trade that was done. And so I found, you know, to my delight as a, a German student that I could listen to German radio in the evenings because it all came in so clearly, sometimes during the day as well, but especially clearly in the evenings. So this was my routine. I would do my homework in the evening. I would listen to NDR, Norddeutsche Rundfunk, from Hamburg. We'd sometimes mm -hmm. get Radio Bremen, which was a, a thing back then as well, no longer. They've all merged. And there was a program that, in fact, I have been listening to even to this day called Berichte von Heute. It used to, used to come on at uh, 11.30 German time, 10.30 Aberdeen time. And it was a 30-minute compendium of the day's news, a lot of politics. Mm -hmm. uh, it would always end with the sport. Then you would go into um, what they called Das Nachtprogramm der ARD, which was basically music, and uh, it was a, a, a joined-up program for all the, the radio stations coming together from the different regions, yeah. and um, you, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. so, so through that, I got, to, I got to sort of learn about this world that nobody else, I felt, was, was learning about, a secret world, uh, and there's something special about a secret world. So, you know, German football, German news and politics, German music, you know, pop music that was very catchy that I'd never heard before, uh, German weather, German traffic news. I loved it. You know, I, I loved sort of just diving into this world, learned so much from it, you know, during those years. I think also, um, aside from all of the content related things that you learn from listening to that you also learn from the uh, journalists in front of the microphone you mentioned languages which is a perfect segue to my next question i found that you speak several languages which is a great skill set for a commentator for a broadcaster is the coach dialect one of them it would probably depend on who you're talking to. I like to think that I can certainly understand Kirsch pretty well, having been exposed to it down the years, and can can try to talk to uh, to, to people in Kern with a little bit of of Kirsch. Um, but it's I wouldn't say it's fluent. <laughs> I, th I think I'd have to spend more time in Kern to be absolutely fluent. But but I do love the fact that it's part of the culture of the football club, right. the culture of, of FC. And, you know, you just have to listen to you know, to, to, to get that feeling and to, you know, to get that, uh, uh, well, I was going to say gefühl, but it's gefühl, uh, mm -hmm. to use, to use the Kirsch word if we want to, to talk Kirsch here. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that that is something that resonates with me. Um, being from Aberdeen, we have our own dialect. Most people think when they hear Scots, they think that, you know, it's already difficult enough, but, um, trust me when I say, if you were to go to Aberdeen, it goes to an even more difficult degree. And, um, I'm quite proud of that dialect and I slip into it when I talk to my, my family. So it's one of the things I like about Germany generally, not just Kirsch, although obviously mm -hmm. that has a special place in my heart, but the fact that you go to every region of Germany and 
and if your ear is well enough attuned, you can say, oh, yeah, that's a that's a Zudbadish dialect or that's a, a Zexish dialect or, or that's definitely Tupish Beirish. Uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, you, you, you can hear all these different sounds. And um, it's one of the great things about languages, not just German, but languages everywhere. And I think it would be a very dull world if we all just sounded the same as each other. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, well, uh, given the, the uh, name and the topic of the podcast, we're staying a little uh, Germany-centric or Cologne-centric here. But you listeners out there could already hear it. It is coming up. There is that roar in the background. And now I'm going to ask the question. So I do understand that there is a professional stance that you have to have of being unbiased when you're a broadcaster. But if we look on the private side of Derek Ray, which clubs are dear to you? Well, obviously, um, in order of when I discovered them, uh, Aberdeen will always be number one because you know, that's my home city. Um, it's where my football roots are. And so 100%. And I have to say, in, in Germany, there are actually two teams because I sort of discovered them almost at the same time. And I think it's okay to have two teams because one is so far down the the divisions now that most people wouldn't really know much about them. But I can confirm that that one of the two um, would be FC Kern. And um, there are reasons for that. I found when I first went to Kern in the 80s that the people were different. They were very warm. Uh, This kind of love of life came through, this almost joie de vivre that I think people have in in Kern. And it didn't hurt, I have to say, that the club at that time was a very attractive club. You know, know, maybe it was easier back then to latch on to a team that you knew would be in the upper echelons of the Bundesliga. You had people like Tony Schumacher. You had the player who was my hero back in those days in, in German terms. You had Pierre Lidbarski. And I've got a great Lidbarski story, actually, to tell you. He was just a super little player and somebody who, even though you weren't a Köln fan as such, you, you would know him around the world just because he popped up in international tournaments and, and had big roles to play for West Germany in, in international tournaments, particularly, you think, back to 1982, that World Cup. You know, going down that list, it, it was a pretty special list of players. And I think that the other factor just was the city. And, and I think undeniably, Köln is different, you know, and it prides itself on on being different. And I like that. You know, it's not trying to to say that it's, you know, amazing compared to every other city although you know some might say (laughs) and and we we both might say that um but um i I like the fact that when you go there you know that it just has its own culture and its own feeling and i never tire of just walking around even now although i haven't sadly been back since the onset of the pandemic and something i really want to to put right i love just walking around and exploring the different areas you know and um no matter which uh Fiedel, 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 mm-hmm. um, area of the city you're in, uh, you find something that catches your eye. And um, yeah, it, it's a city of great character. So, so Kern, and then I do have to mention this other team because um, they, they struggle nowadays, but uh, a team called Hessen Kassel. They caught my imagination because uh, I was studying in the mid-80s in a very small village, you would almost say, right on the border of the two Germanys, in, in West Germany, Hessen on the border with Thüringen. And the closest main city was Kassel. Mm-hmm. And that was about 40 minutes away by train. So that's what I would do. I, I would, uh, on a Saturday, go and watch Hessen Kassel, who at that time were a very good team in the second division, pushing strongly for promotion. And much to my disappointment, they never quite made it. Mm-hmm. They, they had so many near misses and then they began to slide down the divisions and hit serious financial trouble but um, they're still around and that's another place I want to get back to very soon just as a fan back to the the Auerstadion to watch Hessen Kassel. Yeah I mean Kassel now probably most known for its uh, big art festival the annual art festival uh, that is happening there but yeah I mean those appeals of these uh, very small very relatable clubs where you can get very close to the players get very close to the team I think that really does have an appeal and I mean if we look at that in Cologne where you don't just have FC Köln but you have uh, Fortuna Köln you have Victoria Köln and then you have all of those little clubs within those different districts of the city and I think really if you choose your passion there um, and 
and I mean, there are some fans, soccer fans, who say like, yeah, FC Köln is uh, too big. It's hard to get into the stadium. It's too expensive. Then going to Fortuna, going to Victoria, I think is absolutely great and not lesser than because, I mean, the quality is going to be in context. And in that, soccer is beautiful. Yeah, you mentioned Fortuna, Köln and Victoria. That's something that I would do regularly when I would be in Köln for Bundesliga broadcasting duty. I would always look up the schedule and find out when Fortuna were playing. Uh, Victoria, of course, have risen the ranks quite a bit in the last few years. So I've, I've gone to watch them play as well. I've even gone down to Bonn to watch Bonner SC. That is my great love in life, is watching football at all levels. And it's one of the things in Germany that, that is fabulous. And I have a smile on my face as I'm saying this, because wherever you go, it's just different. You know, no two places are identical. I'm not going to say that it's that in other countries, everything is identical, but it's just so refreshing to, to go to a new stadium you've never been to before. Um, you know, it doesn't matter where it is. And just to listen to the, the chat of, of the fans around you. You know, I went to, for example, to Lok Leipzig, you know, an old time Eastern German club a couple of years ago. Made some videos when I was there just of the atmosphere. And there were maybe 4,000 people in attendance on a Friday night. It was a little bit of a taste of, of the old East for me, even just in terms of, you know, at that stadium, they still have, if you remember back in the 70s, the, the old distinctive German horn that you used to hear at uh, football matches, it sort of died out a little bit in the, the 90s and 2000s. But in some places, such as uh, Loch Leipzig, it still exists. I'm just a, a romantic when it comes to that kind of thing, when it comes to something that is unique. You know, Babelsberg, there's another club that mm -hmm. I like going to when I'm in the Berlin area. So, yeah, you can take your pick in Germany. So many opportunities like that. Yeah, I mean, with brass instruments, I just wonder if they are on the list of band instruments because they're so easy to throw. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Um, but let's um, shift back to Cologne. Do you remember your first time in a stadium, Müngersdorfer Stadion? Yes, I do. Um, the first time I was there was actually, believe it or not, for when Rangers played there in a European match. And mm. I was actually covering it. So I'd been there to visit before. I'd been there on the, you know, when you're a young person in Germany on the train, you sort of just bounce around. And uh, I'd been there, but, but I'd never managed to be there when there was a game going on. So my first experience was Kern against Rangers. And I'm going to say it was 87 or 88. It was one of those years. I think it might have been 87. I couldn't believe my luck that here I was as a, a very young broadcaster getting to broadcast a game um, in Müngersdorf uh, against the Scottish team. And not as a broadcaster, but as a fan, you mentioned that you were there before. Do you remember that, like the first time as a fan being in Cologne? Can you describe a little bit of the fan experience? What was it like back then? So the first game as a fan would have been probably a couple of years after that when I went back and I had some, some free time and it was against Hamburg. Mm -hmm. And what I remember about it was just how much of a day out it it seemed, you know, compared to football and other places, it seemed as though the whole city was sort of geared up for this experience. Because, of course, where Müngersdorf is, um, you know, it's not right in the center of the city. It's on the outskirts. You know, you're traveling to the west. So it, it was this kind of um, experience, this communal experience, you know, when you, you jump on the, the S-Bahn and you're packed in with everybody else and... Everybody seemed happy. That's what I remember. And it's still my thought when I go to a game in Köln nowadays that, that people are excited and they're kind of dreamers a little bit, optimists, you know, which is not always the case with, with German football fans. But mm -hmm. I think as a rule, people go to Köln games hoping for the best. They don't go in sort of, you know, dreading it, thinking, oh, we're playing so badly. This is going to be awful. We're going to get thrashed 5-0. Maybe if Bayern come and you know that they're really good, you know, then maybe you're realistic going into a game like that, that it's, it's probably going to be damage limitation. But for the most part, there's this kind of air of excitement. And I think you touched on earlier, Robert, something that's important. Because it's so difficult to get a ticket for Köln, you know, I think what I've realized down the years is that for a lot of people going to the stadium. It might be the first time that season. It might be the first time in 
a few seasons, you know. So it's an experience to savor. But that was my memory of it, you know, on the S-Bahn and then seeing more and more people come on and then you have those sort of bars nearby nowadays and the people there congregating, meeting their friends and just this air of general anticipation. And and I always use Kern as an example of really what it should be as a fan, what the experience should be. Because, yeah, you want your team to win, but being a fan of FC, you know, it has so many other strands to it than just whether you've won or lost the game. You always feel that memories are being made, are being created every time a game happens in Müngersdorf. And that was, you know, to sum up, that was the feeling I had first time there as a fan. And I think that is exactly the the thing where there is always a thing that is bigger than the club itself, bigger than the team, all of the administrative staff, all of the players and everything. But I think in Cologne, and I'm not saying that as somebody from there who just dearly loves the city and everything about it, having grown up there and all, but really just from a neutral standpoint, I think the connection of Cologne as a city with this fatalistic optimism that they have in every (laughs) set of life, if it's soccer or not, with that welcoming idea, uh, with with that kind of laid backness. I mean, a lot of people call Cologne the uh, most northern city of Italy. And I think that's actually a pretty apt description. You have the Kölsche Musik. You have that very strong dialect. You have the fact that we can say we are one of the biggest cities celebrating Carnival. We have the Kölsch and uh, we are this actual center of North Rhine-Westphalia. And I think all of that together pushes the fan base of Cologne to find so many access points of identity so that it really gets lifted up. But that often, especially in the early millennium years, like the years between 2003 and 12, uh, where FC was kind of like back and forth, kind of in a, in a shaky position all the time, where that is also dangerous and could lead to frustration by fans. But I think it is actually something that is fascinating. And that makes me happy to be a part of that because I go to those games more for the fans than because of the game. Because this feeling of togetherness, this giddiness is just something that I have never seen anywhere else. No, you've summed it up very articulately there. And I think anybody who goes for the first time has that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I've had that feeling it hasn't mattered to me whether it's been the Bundesliga or the Zweite Bundesliga, gone to games in the Zweite Bundesliga. Often, actually, um, it would help my schedule when they were in the Zweite Bundesliga because the games were at different times, were at unusual times, and, and I wouldn't be working. But when mm-hmm. you go to those games, you would you would notice that, again, there were people there for the first time. And this feeling of community, the feeling of everyone pulling together. And of course, it all starts early. It starts before a ball has even been kicked on mm-hmm. match day itself. And there's just absolutely nothing like it. We are recording this uh, conversation on November 8th. So we are one day past the uh, 2-2 against Union Berlin. And I would say it was a very physical, a very dramatic game. And with a great coming back by Modest uh, scoring the uh, equalizing goal in the last minutes of the game and reaching really what has then become like a cathartic draw, giving FC the first point against Union Berlin. And... In the press conference afterwards, Steffen Baumgart defended the team and explained that they are a Mannschaft in der Entwicklung, so a team in the process of transformation where mistakes can and will happen in the future. And he emphasized that he expects the press and the fans to go along with this transformation, which I think is a very remarkable and a very realistic thing. But what is your take on Baumgart's internal and external strategies. I think he's a fascinating guy. I think he's somebody who fits Kern. I think we can see that. You know, he's not from Kern, but he's somebody who resonates. And it's amazing the number of people down the years who you might think would be good fits who haven't been, or people who've been surprises who have ended up being sort of 
becoming adopted. Kölner, uh, Peter Stöger, for example, somebody mm -hmm. who, in his own way, different style, different personality in comparison with Baumgart, but but he got it, you know, and I think um, people in, in Köln got him. I think Baumgart is much more in your face. He's much more right in front of you. This is what I'm trying to do. You know, can you not see? It's not going to be perfect every week, but we are trying. We're going to work our socks off. We're going to try new things, and, and you have to all be on the same page. And, and of course, he didn't like the fact that there were one or two boos audible during the, the Union game. Yeah, he didn't like that at all. He said, no, you know, the fans have got to learn that, uh, that we need your support and that's not the time to be booing. So I think it's a relationship that will stand the test of time. Uh, as I say, I, I think that... He's just what was needed because I think in, in recent years in Kern, you know, you, you can go through some of the more recent coaches. Um, there just hasn't been that same connection. I feel a bit bad for Marcos Gisdor because, of course, he was coaching to a large extent during the pandemic when fans weren't inside the stadium. And I can only imagine what that was like, you know, for a coach not having that feedback. Um, Baumgart has come back in, fans in the stadium and more and more with each passing week. And so it, it feels like old times. And it's funny, we're only a few weeks into this season, really, but doesn't it seem to you as though Stefan Baumgart has been there for about two or three years already? It's almost difficult to imagine uh, FCA without him at this point. I think what has been a change in pace is that he, at least for me, has in a way demystified soccer. Soccer is hard work. Soccer is work from one game to another. We are not FC Bayern and we should never be FC Bayern because I think all of the FC Kern fans would be absolutely disappointed and horrified by all of those fans all of a sudden approaching the club, those new fans, they would call them then probably. So being a club in transformation that has its edges, that will lose games, but it's not bad. Like we have lost games aside from the, the Hoffenheim game, which was really tough to watch, but you could see that there is a change in mentality that the players seem to know even if we are losing we're not giving up and we have this strategy and we're following that through and i think that indicates for me a direction that is constructive is that something that you see as well very much so very much so i think even in defeat and you mentioned hoffenheim which was certainly the low point of mm -hmm. the season so far but every team can have a, a night like that and it came on the back of the international break and yeah it wasn't great to watch but you know, it's one game and, and you move on. Yeah, I, I think the players understand their roles much more. You can see that. I think it suits a team like Kern that you have in Baumgart, somebody who is not, he's not somebody who's going to be talking publicly at least about, you know, Spielverlagerung or, or, you know, different concepts that, um, that are interesting to, to those of us who work in the media and probably to a lot of fans. But he has he he is sort of taken it down to bare bones that, um, you know, we will we will be one of the hardest working teams in the league. That is something you will get from us. We may lose the game, but we are going to put everything into it. And that hasn't always been the feeling these last few years with Kern. You felt that it's been a bit more flaky, a bit more kind of, yeah, it could be really good one week, but, but not an awful lot of consistency. I think now you have consistency of effort mm -hmm. um, from game to game. And I think also just with the... The formation, you know, somebody like Modest, um, that's a real tribute to Baumgart because I don't know about you, I, I, I genuinely thought that we, we wouldn't really see very much of Anthony Modest again mm -hmm. as a, a major player in Köln. It, it looked as though those days were very much in the past, but he has figured a way out of bringing a special player back into the fold and, and making him one of the, the special players again. And that is, is something that gladdens the heart. But bringing him back without focusing the game too much on him. And I think that is something that I found very fascinating that under Gisdol, I mean, it was then largely Cordoba, but there, there was always like a lot of pressure on one of the key players that the game was like cut Two. And I think that makes it also very easy to defend against a, a team like that. And well, I think we should not just focus on Baumgart, but also Kevin McKenna, who seems to be doing a very good job. I do believe that it looks like they are taking a very 
individual approach to each of the players. They have changed some of the positions and bringing on players like uh, Skiri, I mean, right now uh, injured, but in a role where he can really thrive. And uh, same with players like Kainz. And I think that is really where you can see that all of them are growing as players as they are continuing to play. And I think that makes it enjoyable for fans and the team. Yeah, very much growing and learning. And I'm glad you brought up Florian Kainz because he's the one who strikes you as an example of a player who, you know, you didn't necessarily know how good he was. You know, you suspected there was a there was a quality player in there. But if you let Kainz do his job on the flank and he's a very good crosser of the ball and you play to his strengths and you have somebody he can cross to, then uh, the game becomes a, a lot more simple. Um, on Kevin McKenna, I'm glad you mentioned Kevin because as you know, I, I, I know Kevin very well because mm-hmm. he's a, a fairly regular co-commentator on the world feed. And you know, Kevin's a, a fascinating study because you know he lives in Kern. Um, he's been there a long time. He's greatly appreciated by the FC fans because he was the ultimate kind of FC player of that era. You know, he, he wasn't necessarily the most talented. He would say that himself, but he would always give 100%. You would always know you were getting that from Kevin McKenna. And I think it was very sensible of Baumgart to realize that, yeah, here's a guy you want to have on your side when you're going into new territory you want to have this guy who is loved by the Köln fans, who understands the culture. You know, it's almost a little bit like going to another country when you go to, to Köln. Um, maybe not 100% the same thing, but, but there is that cultural barrier that you need to, to understand, I think. And, of course, it helped that, um, that they played together um, back in their club days. It's funny. I remember one day I was working with Kevin. I forget what the game was, but there was a story that had popped up that caught my eye that I'm not really sure if there was any truth in this, but it had Stefan Baumgart, who was then the Paderborn coach, linked with Celtic in Scotland. And I remember reading it and thinking, hmm, does that, does that ring true? And I remember Kevin saying, that would be a difficult one. You know, I, um, I know Stefan really well. You know, he's not an English speaker or anything like that. That would be, you know, slightly left field. And he said, but I'll tell you what, he said he, he, he'll be a good coach for somebody in the Bundesliga um, soon. This is when Paderborn weren't in the the Bundesliga. And of course, he was to get Paderborn into the, the Bundesliga. But I remember thinking that and thinking, yeah, well, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe um, you could be a, a, an assistant coach of his. In those days, Kevin was uh, working with Boris Schommers, you know, who, who bounced around mm-hmm. um, Germany with, with, with a variety of clubs. But, but now he's on board with Stefan. So um, football is funny that way because it's such a small world, really, you know. And um, that's the one thing as a commentator that I've... I've come to appreciate is that when you work with an ex-player, the chances are that he will know, you know, 10 people who you know fairly well too, you know, so there's these sort of networks that break up and then uh, are reopened according to who works with whom and all the rest of it. So yeah, that side of it is fascinating. Let's zoom out from that perspective. And now let's go to the American perception of the Bundesliga, which I find very interesting since moving to the US because there are these pockets of uh, fan groups. But as a commentator, what do you think the American perception of German soccer is beyond the international fandom for Bayern München? I think that when it comes to Bayern, uh, obviously, we're talking about, you know, top of the tree and and people see that they see the, the excellence that, that Bayern stand for, and they do. I mean, it's impossible to get away from that. I think that the Bundesliga as a whole, I, I think in the USA, it actually has a very good reputation. I think most people look on the league and, and see a league that they respect. And, of course, the biggest selling point has always been the, the venues and the fans and these full houses. And people would look at that and go, oof, that's just incredible. You know, fans bouncing up and down, um, deafening noise being generated. And so I think that comes through. I think also Americans are very partial to American players. So they like the fact that in recent years, many of their own have come through the Bundesliga and have the Bundesliga to thank for their development. You know, you need only look at people like Christian Pulisic and um, Weston McKenney. Brooks. Yep, John Brooks, of course, who has been there a long, long time. So I think that will continue. And so I, I think from that point of view, 
the the league is is very much watched and um, American fans have an appreciation for it. You know, what disappoints me is that in the USA, as in many other places, there is still this sort of default to the Premier League in England. And I don't mean any harm to the Premier League in England. It's a great league as well, which I, I do watch. It's not a league I work on nowadays, but I, I think sometimes it gets too much of the benefit of the doubt in comparison with other leagues. And yeah, it's easy to watch and it's easy when your friends are talking about a particular league to say, yeah, well, I'm going to watch that league as well. But what I found with the Bundesliga amongst American fans is once they give it the chance and once they actually begin to delve into it themselves, then that's when they become hooked. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, uh, that is what I'm still kind of confused about. The choices between EPL and Bundesliga uh, from an American perspective, because the access points are the same. Like you have uh, English speaking commentators like you, like Phil Bonney and others. And so there there are no language barriers and the, the soccer is also attractive. I, where do you think, where's the pull? Is it historic? Is it financial? I think it's a number of things. I think the Premier League got started earlier than most leagues in terms of the internationalization of uh, their league. And I know that's a word that the Bundesliga uses a lot, um, internationalisierung, internationalization. Um, maybe doesn't translate quite so well to English. It, it's, it, it, it works very well in German, of course. I think the Bundesliga was involved in that process much earlier. Sorry, the Premier League was involved in that process much earlier than the, the, than the Bundesliga. And so they have managed to reap the rewards of that. You know, they've had many years with a lot of coverage on NBC you know, mm -hmm. and available to people. And so people get into these habits, you know, and they, as I say, talk to their friends and they see it on social media. They see these things reinforced. It's one thing to have that. It's another thing when the language, the default language is English on social media and in other places. And so, of course, you have the English media, um, which will pop up on social media and Americans can read that easily. With German media, you know, unless there are those of us who are, um, translating things, which I try to do a lot on social media to, to try to, to help people guide um, their way through some of these stories, then it's more difficult. So I think you have those things that are working against it. But at the same time, in the USA, it's all available. And, you know, I say this as somebody who works not just for ESPN, but also for the DFL as part of the World Feed. It's available for, as I like to put it, the price of a large cup of coffee a month at pretty much any well-known um, coffee chain, you know? That's how much we're talking about. <laughs> and you can watch every Köln game. You can watch every Frankfurt game if you're an Eintracht fan, and so on and so on. And, you know, you'll be able to back me up on this, Robert. You know, if you yeah. tell people in Germany this, or as I do, tell people in Scotland this, they, they can't quite believe it. They, they, they would think, and what, people complain about that? And I say, well, there are still some people who think that that's too much money, you know? Yeah, well... To some degree, I, I would always say like, yeah, it, it would be great if it were all free, if you would buy one one package of what you're interested in. And then let's say like everything Bundesliga related, like you get all of the games. You also get the second uh, division games, which is one of the things that I dearly miss because right now the second Bundesliga is just as exciting as the first. And that has not been the case when I started becoming very interested in soccer. And and now you have, well, sadly, with some of the teams like Bremen, like Hamburg, like Schalke, who have joined there, but also some of the teams that have really built up a good rapport and a good team in the second division. I mean, it's just as interesting as, for instance, the championship in England, right? Yeah. Oh, no, for me, I'm absolutely the case. I'm a huge Zweite Bundesliga fan as well. I think the, the hard thing in the USA is there are so, only so many hours in the day to be watching football. Yeah. And if you think about all the leagues that are now available from the Premier League to the Bundesliga to La Liga to Serie A to Liga on the back of a Champions League, Europa League week, um, it, it's sort of how you how you get people switched on to something like the Zweite Bundesliga. Now, I understand the argument, you know, if you don't show all the games and make them available, nobody will find them. But, you know, I could sort of talk about the Scottish League under similar circumstances. The Scottish League, which means everything to people in Scotland. Um, and people in Scotland say to me, well, why do, why do Americans not watch the 
Scottish League. And I say, well, if it were the only league available, they might find it. You know, they might think a, a Celtic-Aberdeen game is a great game to watch. But how do you get them onto it? You know, and I think the Zweite Bundesliga, even with Hamburg, Schalke, Werder Bremen, mm. uh, Fortuna Düsseldorf, St. Pauli, you know, Dynamo Dresden, all these great traditional clubs. How do you get people to pick that over the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A? and the Bundesliga. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left here. So I have a couple of uh, quick questions for you. Uh, one of the things that I really was looking forward to asking you is, so you have been in the broadcasting business for more than 40 years, four decades. How did it change over time? Oh, it's changed in so many ways. I think when I started, it was... It was... How would I sum this up? When I began, there were fewer people involved. It was a smaller operation. You know, it seemed as though you sort of knew everybody in, in the business, even commentators in other countries, because there were so few of us who actually did it. Now it's much more common. So that's actually encouraging for younger broadcasters. There is more broadcasting, you know, when it comes to local radio, local TV. Look at every club. They all have their own broadcasters. They all have their own people who are, are making TV or radio on behalf of that club. But against that, a lot of the basics haven't changed. And certainly I feel that the basics of what I do, commentary, shouldn't really have changed too much, that we're doing the same job. I think it ha where it has changed is on TV. When I compare what I used to do on TV in the 1980s to what I do now, I think we all talk a lot more than we used to. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Probably it's a bad thing in, in some areas because there's an old saying that um, at the BBC we used to be told less is more. You know, that um, if you're not saying something that is enhancing the viewing experience, then don't say anything at all. And I notice actually with German commentators on TV that, that they have traditionally said less than their counterparts in, in many parts of the world. You know, so yeah. you will hear um, whether it's, you know, Belareti on ZDF or Tom Bartels on ARD, both very good experienced commentators. They will generally talk a lot less and you will have sort of 40 second gaps sometimes in live games where nothing is said at all because the feeling is nothing needs to be said. Um, I think in our English language culture, with the where it's changed is we didn't used to have co-commentators. Now we have co-commentators. And when we phased in co-commentators, it used to be that we would sort of bring them in about once every 10 minutes and they would almost be separate from the main broadcast and then every 10 minutes I would say oh well with me is is so-and-so ex-captain of of uh, Rangers um what are your impressions so far you know and they would give sort of an overview and then you wouldn't hear from them again for 10 minutes mm -hmm. whereas now it's much more a conversation between two people and I leave that to viewers listeners um to make their own judgment as to to what's best so it's definitely changed in, in that sense but there's part of me that in tv terms anyway radio is different radio has always got mm -hmm. to be continuous action because you are the, the the game you are the picture as a radio commentator but in tv terms i do wonder if sometimes we have gone a bit too much in the direction of too much chatter one of the things that i was wondering so you're broadcasting a lot you're very very busy during the seasons and you've been doing this for a long time has there been a moment in the last years where something happened in a game that you were broadcasting that really reminded you that stood out to you for like why you're feeling so passionate about the sport of soccer um, I think the moment above all in recent years would actually have been in Germany at the um, Revier Derby, Dortmund against Schalke in 2017. And again, not to tell the, the, the whole story because it might take uh -huh. several minutes, but um, Dortmund were 4-0 up at halftime. Schalke began eating into their lead in the second half, 4-1, 4-2, still a few minutes to go. It's not going to happen, is it? 4-3... And, you know, as a commentator, you are on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next. And I had Stefan Freund next to me, who, of course, played mm -hmm. for both Dortmund and Schalke. And then when Naldo made it 4-4, that's when it, it made me, you know, 
realise this is just why we love this this game of football. And I'm sure Dortmund fans, you know, weren't loving that game of football at that particular time. It would be the same for any team that had lost a four 0 lead. But it it just you know, and I looked over to the and you know what I'm talking about the, the Gäste Block in the Signali Duna Park. Seven thousand Schalke fans are there on that corner, and they were just going absolutely crazy. And um, they will, you know, to come back to what we said earlier, they will have these memories forever and mm-hmm. they'll be telling their children and their grandchildren and it'll get passed along. And so I think that's what rammed home to me, the fact that football is continuous and it, it's something that, you know, even though you and I could talk about a game that we watched 20, 25 years ago and, and modern fans might not realize what we're talking about by telling the story and by showing the the video as well i think that's powerful nowadays as well then you can really stress to future generations just what this is and it's a passing of the torch constantly from one period to another and it's why the game is so beautiful and it's why the game in germany for me is so beautiful because the fans actually are participants in the drama in a way that is not the case and is uh, increasingly not the case in other countries. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I like to end every interview with five short questions, short answers. Number one is, is there a game on your personal wish list that you would love to commentate? Um, live in the stadium, the day at Bepokal final. <laughs> what is the most memorable moment for you as a fan? Most memorable moment, Aberdeen winning the Cup Winners' Cup in 1983, beating Real Madrid in the final. All right. And what is your must-do when one is in Cologne? Must-do when one is in Cologne would be, oh, so many things, but let me pick out one thing. Apart from going to Müngersdorf, you would have to go to the cathedral. You, you couldn't go. You couldn't be in Köln and not be inside the dome and appreciate its its beauty and its grandeur. All right. What is your projection on how FC Köln is going to finish the season in 2020? Well, at the start of the campaign, I think I had them around 15th. So okay. I think it's going to be better than that. So my prediction would be, when all is said and done, I'm going to say 10th or 11th. All right. And now, last question, and this is kind of the link to the story that you teasered. Which is a former FC player that you truly appreciate? Pierre Ledbarski. There you go. <laughs> and I, I would love to tell you the story about... about so do we have time to go into that? Oh, absolutely. If you have time, yeah, sure. Well, well, here's my, my Ledbarski story, and um, this amazes me to this day. So I went out to Australia in 2005 because Australia were on the cusp of qualifying for the World Cup for the first time since the 1974 World Cup in West Germany. And while I was in Sydney for this game, and they were actually to beat Uruguay in this game to to qualify, so it was an amazing story that I was so privileged to cover. But my bosses at ESPN said, oh, we have a chance um, for you to do an interview while you're out there. Would you be interested in talking to Pierre Litbarski? And I said, yeah. Of course, yeah, he's a hero of mine. And um, the reason why we had this chance was he was then coaching the, the team in Sydney. So he was in Australia at that point. And so I went out to the training ground and, um, you know, waited there. And um, the press officer had set all this up. And then I saw this figure walking towards me, very distinctive figure of, of Pierre Litbarski. And he had a big smile on his face as he walked over to me. And as he walked over, he said, ah, he said, he said, it is you. He said, he said uh, uh, it is great to meet you. And I, I, said, I said, well, no, it's great for me to meet you. I said, I said I'm the one that, uh, that has the honor. And he said, no, he said, I, I watch your show every week. We did a show on ESPN called Press Pass that used to be broadcast in Australia, a football discussion show. And it turned out that Pierre Litbarski was watching it every week and uh, knew exactly who I was. And um, that was very humbling because when you meet one of your heroes and he turns out to be as nice as Pierre Litbarski was, then it doesn't get any better than that, does it? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Appreciation and appreciation from somebody that you appreciate. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. No. Thank you. That was a beautiful uh, way to round off this episode. 
Thank you so much. Uh, you can find Derek Ray on Twitter with his deeper digs into everything regarding the Bundesliga and more. His Twitter handle is Raycom, that is R-A-E-C-O-M-M. Derek, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Oh, Robert, not at all. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's been most enjoyable and good luck with future episodes. Thank you very much. And that is it for this episode of FC Uval. Again, many thanks to Derek for taking the time to talk to me. New episodes of FC Uval will be out on December 8th and December 22nd. So stay tuned for those. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments or are a fan out there in the world who wants to be part of the show, you can reach out to me at any time. My email address is fcval at gmail.com. That is E-F-F-Z-E-H-U-V-V-E-R-A-L-L. Or via Twitter, the handle is fcval. That is it for now. Thank you very much. Take care and as always, 